Good morning, church. Good to see everybody out here this morning. So go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 33. Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 33. The title of the sermon is Living the Christian Life, Part 2. Last week in Part 1, I covered the first half. Today, I'll cover the second. But I still want to read them all together because both chunks go together. When you're at Romans chapter 15, you're already there. I was going to say, if you could stand, please stand. Um, As I read from the Word of God, I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Paul, the apostle, writes this. He says, my brothers and sisters, I myself am convinced about you that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points because of the grace of uh, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God. God's purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to God. For I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed for the obedience of the Gentiles, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders, and by the power of God's Spirit. As a result, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, so that I will not build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written... Those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. That is why I have been prevented many times from coming to you. But now I no longer have any work to do in these regions, and I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. For I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my journey there, once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Right now, I'm traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints, because Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased, and indeed are indebted to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual benefits, then they are obligated to minister to them in material needs. So, when I have finished this and safely delivered the funds to them, I will visit you on the way to Spain." I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in prayers to God on my behalf. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, that my ministry to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed together with you. May the God of peace be with all of you. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's go to him in prayer. God, we come before you this morning and we just ask you to be with us as we go through your word, that you would give us all the eyes to see what your word is saying and ears to hear it and hearts to receive it, that we will be changed and transformed by it, that we would live more like the example of, of Jesus, Lord, that we would live in a way that is pleasing to you, God. And God, we pray that as unbelievers hear this, as they hear your word, go forth, and as they hear the gospel, that you would save them. And we pray in everything you'd be glorified. Now, Lord, I pray that you would remove me as much as possible. I pray that you would remove any distractions that are in my mind, for there are many. Um, Lord, and so just remove all that. Have it just be your word going to your people um, in in your way, God. And so uh, for your purpose, for your glory. And we just pray all this to you, God, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Please have a seat. So last week, we began this text, and it called on us to reflect on the Christian life. What does it mean to live the Christian life? Does it mean to be moral people that live according to Christian values? Well, that's a result of living the Christian life. Okay, but the Christian life itself is something that's much more active. The Christian life ultimately is a life of service. It is doing what God has called us to do. That is the Christian life. It's using the gifts of the Holy Spirit that God has given us, that the Holy Spirit's given us. It's using those gifts to serve Christ, to serve the church, and also to serve the world by preaching the gospel to them. It's being intentional about such service. That's the Christian life. Simply put, Jesus sums it up this way. The Christian life in Matthew 6.33. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. That's the Christian life. Everything we need in life will be given to us, but we need to focus on seeking first the kingdom of God. That is done by serving, okay? We seek the the matters of the kingdom by serving the king. That's what it means to live a good Christian life. And so the point of our text relates to this. It's it's the same as the point was last week because we're covering the same text, just the the second half. And so for the note takers, the, the point is this. Christians need to intentionally be on point for God's mission. That's what we're gonna see here. Christians need to intentionally be on point for God's mission. That is what it means to live a good Christian life. Anything else and everything else falls short. So, If the point is Christians need to intentionally be on point for God's mission, then that begs the question of how do we do it? And in our text, Paul shows us how he was on point for God's mission in two steps. First, you evaluate what you've already done. And then second, you are intentional in planning what you will do. So if you evaluate what you have done and then are intentional in planning what you will do in the Lord, that is how you will intentionally be on point for Christ's mission. So last time we covered the first half of the text. We covered the idea of evaluating what you've already done. And I mentioned as we started this text last week that we are now beginning the end of Romans. This is what scholars call the ending frame to the letter. This is where Paul starts talking about his personal plans and he starts encouraging the Roman Christians with what he knows about them. And really these parts of Paul's letters, because he does this in all of his letters, right? I think they're gold mines. If you want to see what the Christian life looks like, just read the beginning and ending of most of Paul's letters, right? Because he shows us, repeatedly he shows us with his example that the Christian life is service to God. Okay, And so we looked last time at what Paul had already accomplished in his life in Christ up to that point. And it was super impressive. First thing he told us is how he looked at ministry. He saw ministry as faithful service. And he saw faithful service as an act of worship, as an offering that a priest would give to God. Okay, So what we do for the Lord is priestly service. Okay, It's an offering to the Most High. And if you have that offering imagery in your mind, then you think back to the Old Testament and we realize in the Old Testament, God does, God wants your best. He doesn't want your leftovers. He doesn't want your, your weak sauce offerings. He wants you to give him the best that you have. And Paul in his service gave God his best. Additionally, we saw that as he evaluated what he had accomplished, 
He told us that he had preached the gospel and planted churches from Jerusalem to Illyricum. That is huge. That is a 1,400-mile semicircle that went from Jerusalem westward to Illyricum. And in only 25 years, this man in sandals covered 1,400 miles and planted a whole bunch of churches. Through that ministry, he brought many Gentiles to God as a holy offering, and God blessed his work. Okay? And I bring that all up in summary to say likewise, when you are living on point for Christ's mission, like Paul, you will be able to look back and see what God's done through you. You might not be able to say you covered 1,400 miles, but you will be able to look back and, and see what God has done. And so that is what Paul did in verses 14 through 21. But he doesn't stop there. Your past accomplishments in the Lord should then propel you into further accomplishments. And that's what Paul's going to show us in the rest of the text, verses 22 through 33. He's going to show us what it looks like now to intentionally plan what you will do next for the Lord. So look at verse 22. Starting in verse 22, Paul writes this. He says, that is why I've been prevented many times from coming to you. Now, this refers back, the word that refers back to what he just said. He just got done saying that I have fully preached the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And and I've been wanting to come to Rome is what he's saying. I've been wanting to come for a long time, but I had so much work to do for Christ in that giant stretch of land. Okay, that's what prevented me from coming to you. Okay, but now things are different. He's not prevented anymore. Look what he says in verse 23. In, the, in verse 23, in the first part of verse 24, he says this. He says, but now I no longer have any work to do in these regions. And I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. Okay? So in that line there, he is setting up for us what his plan is. First, he's letting them know that there is no more required work for him in the places that he's been working for his entire ministry. He's done there. He says, I got nothing left to do here. Now, we do have to ask, what what does he mean by that? I mean, and the answer is he's being strategic, okay? Are there people in that 1,400-mile stretch that never heard of Jesus? Yes. Could Paul go preach the gospel to them, and perhaps they'll come to the Lord and be saved? Yes. So if that's true, then what does Paul mean that he no longer has any work to do in those regions? Well, it's like I told you last week. He planted a lot of churches there, plenty of churches in those regions, and those churches are maturing. Those churches are at the point where they can now plant other churches. So, for example, Paul invested three years in Ephesus to build the church of Ephesus. That church became a fairly healthy church, and the church of Ephesus planted a church in Laodicea and a church in Colossae, right? That's, That's how it works. Historians often claim that the success of the spread of Christianity in the Roman Empire was from regular, everyday Christians telling everyone they knew about Jesus. There's a lesson to be learned there for us. So what you have in that region is you have growing churches that then plant other churches, and then the people of those churches go about telling everybody they know about Jesus. This is why Paul said he no longer has any work to do in those regions. The mission will continue without him. It will be completed without him. Now, had he left too early before those churches reached maturity, then yeah, all of his work would have fizzled out. But he's now only willing to leave when those churches could do the work without him. In other words, yeah, he could go preach to people, but even if he's not there, those people are going to be reached now. 
They're going to be reached by the mature churches that are there and that are multiplying. Okay? That is why there's no longer any real work for him to do there. Okay? And by the way, that is what Christian ministry is supposed to do. It's always about multiplication. What Paul's talking about here, he lived out, right? I mean, obviously, he's telling them this is what he did. And later, he's going to write this strategy to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, this is really a church plan here. He says this. He says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, I don't know if you notice, but there are four generations in that one verse. You have Paul, okay, what you've heard from me. You have Timothy, you, what you heard from me. So Paul teaches Timothy, but he says to Timothy, commit this to faithful men, third generation, so that those men could teach others, fourth generation, okay? That is how a city gets reached for Christ. It's not addition, it's multiplication. See, what Paul did is he replicated himself in Timothy. He made it to where Timothy could do what he could do, right? And it wasn't just Timothy. He did this in Luke, in Epaphras, in Titus, and quite a few others. Those guys could then go replicate what they can do in multiple other people. And then the guys they pour themselves into can go do the same. It's like a pyramid, right? Not a pyramid scheme, but a pyramid. It's just real simple. You're, you're reproducing yourself and people who then go reproduce themselves as, as strong disciples of Christ. So any healthy church will always be doing that. If a church isn't doing that, it's not functioning with health. So for example, here you have three pastors, but we have six people who are elder interns right now. We are training up six more people to be able to do what we do. In addition to those six, we're doing the same thing for a young pastor over at a sister church in Victorville, Sovereign Trinity Church, and I'm also doing it for a Spanish church down the street with Pastor Jesus at Cadas Iglesia. So the point is, six people here were being raised up, and we're also helping other churches in, in the same kind of way. It's that multiplication mindset, okay? And so when you have faithful teachers and preachers and you have that expanding here at Sovereign Way, let's say, then more and more folks in the church can be taught, counseled, and discipled. They will then grow in maturity, and they will likely go and tell more people about Jesus. And then the church grows, and eventually the church, we're not there yet, but eventually the church gets big enough to where maybe we send two of those trained pastors to go plant another church in Apple Valley, and we tell 50 people to go with them, and we help fund them for a year or two. And then guess what? Over the next 10 years, they do what we did, and then they go plant a church in Phelan, or, wait, which way is Phelan? Phelan, or Lucerne Valley, or whatever. But, but the point is, it ends up growing exponentially. And here's the thing. Those churches, the one in Apple Valley, hypothetical, the make-believe one in Lucerne and Phelan, they won't need my preaching. They won't need Pastor Josh or Pastor Brian's preaching. Their multiplication would happen without us because they would be mature churches that are able to do it on their own. That is what Paul did in that 1,400-mile region. That's why he could leave. But for example, if myself or Josh or Brian, if we left Sovereign Way right now, Honestly, I think we'd be deserting our post. If, if somehow there was a greener field, okay, and, and we left for that, then all the momentum we have right now, it would fizzle, okay? And then you're not going to have planted churches a couple years from now. Pretty much what we've been doing since 2010 would all be for nothing. That's why you can't 
leave too early. That's why Paul says, I was prevented from coming to you because I still had work there. You got to finish that work first, okay? Otherwise, everything you built, it'll die on the spot, okay? So for 25 years, Paul had to be in that region. But after that 25 years, he's like, okay, great. Now they're multiplying. They're replicating this all on their own. I can move on. That's why he says in this verse, he says, now... I no longer have any work to do in these regions. And so with that being the case, now he could go to his long-term desire to go to Rome and then to Spain. And I think there's such a good lesson there. People will often put their desire before their work for the Lord is complete. They desire maybe, I want to move here or I want to do this, but they're not done with what the Lord's called them to do. Often people will stop what they're doing and chase their desire. Paul held that desire in check for years until he was done with the work. Then he went and carried out his desire. If only we would learn from that. Anyway, now that the work is done where he's at, he says, quote, I have strongly desired for many years. Okay, this has been in his mind for a long time. I've strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. So that's his plan. Okay, one mission field is done for me. Now I'm ready to go to another. I'm not retiring. I'm going to another. And so he gives more detail about his plan in the rest of verse 24. Look, look at the rest of verse 24. He says, For I hope to see you when I pass through and be assisted by you for my journey there once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Now, it is real easy to read past that verse and miss a lot of important truths about mission work. I would say the entire philosophy of missions is packed in this, what we just read. So let me quickly pull some of these truths out of this text. First notice that Paul here does not intend to go to Spain alone. Why not? He's an apostle, right? Can't he just show up on his own authority and do mission work on his own initiative? No, not even Paul. Missions belongs not to an individual that wants to be a missionary. Instead, missions belongs to the local church. Missions belongs to you. Just like pastoral ministry belongs to you. Okay, there's no such thing as a pastor without a church. I'm just a roving pastor with no flock. No, you're just a dude walking around wanting to give speeches. Okay, ministry belongs to the local church. It's the same thing with missions. Nobody goes out on their own authority. Even Paul saw himself as one who is sent by local churches. I want us to look back at Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15 for just a second. This is where Paul was talking about the gospel going to the nations, right? And he just got done in verse 13 of saying, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then he continues. He says, how then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? We often miss that sent part, okay? How can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so notice his point. Yeah, people need preachers to hear the gospel, but those preachers, those missionaries, they need to be sent. Sent by whom? Well, some people will be like, well, the Holy Spirit. Yes, obviously, okay? But that's not, his, that's not what he's getting at here. What he's actually getting at is the local church. And we know that because now that he gets to the end of the letter, he's telling these guys, I want you guys to send me to Rome or to Spain, Right? That's what he means by being sent. And you know what? This whole idea of the Holy Spirit picking the missionary, but the church sending the missionary, that's easily observable in Paul's own call to be a missionary. Look at Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3. 
It says, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Okay, Holy Spirit picked them. Verse 3, then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. You notice how it's both? Notice how it's both? Nobody could just say, well, the Holy Spirit sent me. If the Holy Spirit sent you, a church is going to pray and fast and lay their hands on you and send you under the authority of that local church. And that's what happened to Paul, one of the apostles. He was a pastor at that church. The Holy Spirit says, all right, you're going to do mission work now. And then the church said, all right, laid their hands on him. Sure, it made that noise. And then they sent him. They sent him on his mission. And guess what? It didn't just stop with, with, the, with the sending, right? And, and by the way, what we just saw there is matching um, what he said in Romans 10 about being sent. Okay, he sent from a local church, from Antioch, that was the church. And guess what? When Paul and Barnabas were done, that's why I'm saying it didn't stop there. When they were done with that first mission, guess who they reported back to? Themselves, me, myself, and I? No, they went right back to their sending church, the church in Antioch. You see that in Acts chapter 14, verse 27. They go back and report everything the Lord had done through them. Afterwards, that same church, Antioch, sends Paul and Silas again on another mission. And when that was done, he reported back to them again in Acts chapter 18, verse 22. Even Paul was accountable to the local church in his mission work. Okay, he had to be sent. So my point is, it was never just his own. And it wasn't, and also just another thing to understand with this, as he was ministering during those missions, it wasn't only his sending church, the Antioch church, that was supporting him with money. He tells us in 2 Corinthians eleven nine. if you were to write that down and look it up later, he tells them that the Macedonian churches supplied his financial needs while he was doing his mission work in Corinth. Okay, what that means, the Macedonian churches, that's the church of Philippi, the church of Thessalonica, and the Bereans. Those three churches pooled money together to pay for his work that he was doing in Corinth. So what this shows us is that the New Testament model is there's a single church that sends the missionary, like Antioch, but then multiple local churches can pool their resources together to take some of that burden off of the original sending church. This is what we see in the scriptures. And by the way, that's exactly what the Southern Baptist Convention does. That's why it exists. A local church like ours cannot afford to send a missionary all by ourselves to the ends of the earth. But we can train a missionary. We could raise a missionary up, somebody like John Weigel. That's his goal. And if he proves to be equipped and faithful, then the International Mission Board will fully fund his mission. How can they do it? Because we... And 47,000 other churches are pulling our money together so that we could send missionaries to the unreached people groups. That's why we belong to the SBC. And you get half off at their seminaries. But the main reason is, is the missionary work. That's why we're part of this organization. That's why we raise money for the Lottie Moon offering. We are literally imitating Paul's own missionary methodology. So sometimes folks wonder, like, why do we do it this way? Why do we push this stuff? Because it's right here. It's coming right off the text. And remember, our goal is to be biblical people doing biblical things the biblical way. Not the way we think, but the biblical way. And that's what we're seeing here. But anyhow, getting back to Paul's point, he wants to go to Rome, he says. That's part of his plan. I want to go there. I want to get to know you. That's what he means when he says enjoying their company for a while. He then wants them to be his next sending church. See, his first sending church, Antioch, was the perfect gateway into the eastern half of the Roman Empire. 
Okay, but Rome is the perfect gateway into the second half or the western half of the Roman Empire. So Paul wants this Roman church to be his new Antioch. And make no mistake about it, this second mission, or well, this technically would be his fourth, but his, I guess, second region, actually, he's done smaller regions. The Western Empire is going to be a lot harder, is my point. It's going to be a lot harder for him to minister in Spain than anywhere else he's ministered. Why? Spain had no synagogues. The archaeological record shows Jews didn't get there until the third century, okay? So there's no synagogues there. Everybody in Spain spoke Latin, not Greek. You might say, don't they speak Spanish? Not 2,000 years ago, okay? So the people in Spain were speaking Latin. Paul most likely did not know Latin, okay? Everywhere Paul has gone up to this point had synagogues and the people spoke Greek. They had the scriptures already in their city. So he could roll up to his synagogue. He could open the scriptures they already have and preach to them. Furthermore, in those synagogues, you had both Jews and Gentiles. You had certain Gentiles who were called God-fearers, meaning they rejected paganism. They believed in the God of Israel, but they weren't willing to be circumcised. So they're kind of in between. Not quite Jews, but they're not pagans either. So they're in a synagogue. Imagine this room's filled with Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. Paul comes in, opens scriptures they're already familiar with, brings them to Jesus. So now you have Jews and Gentiles, and then those Gentiles understand their pagan counterparts, and they go and preach to them, and that's how Paul would win cities in the East. When he gets to Spain, that's not going to work. No synagogue, the language is Latin, it's completely different. So he's literally going to be starting from scratch. What he wants to do in Spain is a lot more like the mission work today. When people go to unreached groups and and like nobody knows the language. So when you get there, you got to learn the language or you have to have somebody on your team that knows the language. Okay, there's there's no churches or synagogues or anything in the unreached places where our missionaries could, you know, start off in. No, you literally have to move there, get a regular job there, get to know the people and over the long game, get some converts and then build a church from that. That's, what it, that's how hard it is when you go to unreached people groups. And that's pretty much what Paul is planning to do in Spain. But he could do it faster with the Roman Christians' help because Roman Christians were fluent in both Latin and Greek. So they could speak what Paul speaks, but they could speak what those natives speak. So there could be translation. Additionally, the imperial, imperial culture of Rome was the same culture in Spain. Very different than the Eastern culture that Paul was used to where it was all Greek. So my point was, Paul wants to go to Rome so he could build a team who has the skill sets that he needs so that he can then go to Spain. And he also wants them to fund him. We see this very clearly in verse 24. He says he wanted to, quote, be assisted by you for my journey there. Now, the Greek word for assisted, popempo, literally means to send someone by providing assistance, okay? So that's Paul's plan. He's, and again, it's teaching you all these things that I'm saying about missions, okay? Missions, even though it is far away, it is a ministry of the local church. So he's asking a local church to take on his plan, authorize it, give me a team, give me money, send me there, okay? And then over time, other churches would, would pull in with that as well. That's what missions is all about. So What it means is every local church should be supporting global missions with both finances and people who have the skill sets and the time and the means to be able to to go help and serve. It's a local church ministry. We often think of it over there, but the over there starts here. You get what I'm saying? And that's what we're seeing here. 
Now, you might think that only preachers are needed. That would be like only Paul. That'd be like only Paul needing to go to Spain. No, he needed helpers, okay? And so guess what? In the current mission field, you need nurses, doctors, scientists. Often they become the means for missionaries to to get to these hard-reached places. My small group uh, on the last book we were going through, we were going through a book by David Platt where he's talking about missions in the Himalayas and some hard-to-reach people groups. And the missionaries had a hard time getting a hearing because that place is fully pagan, fully under a lot of Buddhist, um, you know, just folk religion and stuff like that. So the way they started getting their hearing is nurses and doctors started going over there taking care of their health needs in the name of Christ. And then you have this one scientist from the, from the American South who uh, was an expert on trout poop. And you might say, okay, trout poop, how is this going to serve the Great Commission? Well, what he realized is trout poop is some of the best fertilizer for the crops that grow there. So he took a bunch of trout and some huge tanks, brought it over there, and breeds these trouts, takes the trout poop, and has made their crops just grow exponentially, and then he's able to give them meat from the fish. And so now these people are there thinking, wait a minute, in the name of Christ, these guys have been here less than 20 years. They've done more for us than the Buddhist monks in thousands of years. And then the missionary starts talking to them about Jesus, and then they start listening. You get what I'm saying? It takes a team. It takes creativity. And Paul is trying to build that kind of team, maybe not trout poop experts, but he's building a team in Rome. That's what he's going for here. So anyway, in all of this, Paul is describing his plan. First, as we saw last time, he spoke about his past work. He says, I've served God faithfully. I preached the gospel fully out here in the east. Now I want to go west. And just like I had sending churches and supporting churches in the east, I'm going to need the same in the west. And it starts with you guys in Rome. Okay? I'm also going to need more. I'm going to need these helpers. And together, we will be able to do in the west what I have already done in the east through the work, through the power of Christ. Okay? So I read all that, right? When I read that and I sit back and I reflect on Paul's plan, it's genius for a lot of reasons. First is biblical. Why? Because he's taking Christ's name to the unreached. That's what Jesus commanded the church to do. I mean, all four gospels end with the Great Commission and the book of Acts begins with it, right? This is the work of the church, is the Great Commission. So it's biblical what Paul is doing. Second, it's practical, meaning he's not doing it on his own strength. He's doing it on Christ's strength, but he's doing it with the help of the local church, right? And multiple churches. And then third, it's sustainable, right? The Eastern churches are already sustainable. Their work's going to continue without Paul. He's building self-sustaining ministries. Now, when there's problems, he could send guys like Timothy and Titus to put out the fires and strengthen what's already there. But for the most part, those churches are sustainable. So now Paul's saying, I'm going to do this all over again, but over there. And if he succeeds and he builds sustainable churches and, and makes sustainable disciples, then it will happen, right? This is, this is the strategy. This is how it's supposed to be done. And one key thing we have to keep in mind when we're reading all of this is the I word. All of this is intentional. None of this is, is happenstance, right? Paul had been thinking about this and praying about this and musing on this for a long time. He told us that already in the text. He said, for many years, I've desired to come to you on the way to Spain. That means it's been in his mind for a long time. We see the same thing in the book of Acts, okay, when it's describing a similar period of time as to when Paul wrote Romans. In Acts chapter 19, verse 21, it says, after these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. He's going to tell us the same thing in a minute. He then says, after I've been there, it's necessary for me to see Rome as well. 
My point is, Paul's been talking about this for a long time. And I bring that up to say, look, you are not going to fulfill your calling in the Lord by just passively sitting down with no plan and just assuming it's all going to work out. That's, that's not what we've been called to do. We need to be intentional. So you ask yourself, what is my gift or what are my gifts? How can those gifts serve the church? How could they serve this wider community? And how could I leverage them to help with the global mission? Even if I'm not going, if I'm not a goer, I'm a sender. How can I use my gifts to help with that? Okay, so first, like Paul, you got to reflect on what you've already done. Look at what you've done. And if you've done nothing, like I said last week, start today. Should have started last week, but start today if you didn't, right? And then a year from now, look back at what you've done and build on those to then plan for what you're going to do next. Are the accomplishments you've done, are they paving the way for expansion within your ministry? I want to give some examples from this church, okay? First, I think a great example is our anchored youth ministry. It started with two things, having youths in a room, okay? That's all we had. Okay, Pastor Josh said, okay, we got like four teenagers and we got a little room in our old brick building. Okay, so it starts by teaching them in that place, but that's not where he kept it in his mind. The idea was that, you know what? We got to build this. We got to train teachers up so that then Pastor Josh could step away and the teachers could do this uh, without him. And then furthermore, there had to be a way that we could build fellowship, koinonia among these kids, hence the games and uh off-roading, and Camp Pondo. All those things are intentional to build koinonia. So not only to teach the kids, but to build real solid friendships, to raise up other teachers to keep doing this. And now what are these kids doing? They're telling their unsaved friends, you got to come to our youth group. And some of them have got saved there. That is intentional planning. It starts here, but it's not going to stay there because the vision is all the way here. And with measurable steps, you... Keep expanding. You build on what you already have. And it hasn't reached its apex yet. I know Pastor Josh has plans of one day being able to use it as a workshop for music for kids in the community that may or may not be saved. And then also getting a lot more of our kids volunteering at Camp Pondo. We already got two, right? That way we turn it into better teaching up there. So that is what it looks like to work, look back on what you've done, and then forward plan. I think our mercy ministry's done that a lot as well. Started off with Thanksgiving dinners. Now we got a full clothing closet. We work with rescue mission, uh, crisis pregnancy centers. Um, so how do we build from there? Okay, again, we, we look at how it's been growing in measurable, measurable things. And then from there, we figure out how to expand. And I've got some ideas on that. But the, the point is, these ministries are expanding because their leaders are forward thinking. And if you'll bear with me, I'll even use myself for just a second. Okay, when I came on as a full-time pastor in 2017, I, I had a plan. I had a couple plans, okay? And the plan wasn't just to keep the lights on, okay? Some people think, ah, oh, the plan is just to preach. If my whole plan was I just got to get from Sunday to Sunday, man, get these sermons done, manage the budget, and pay these bills, nothing's going to happen there. No, when, when I came on, I'm like, okay, my goal is to raise up more pastors my goal is that every other year we at least go on one short-term mission trip. Um, another goal was that um, we plant churches. Hopefully every three to four years we're able to plant new churches, English ones and Spanish-speaking ones, because that's, our, that's the demographics in our community that we want to serve. Now, when I came on full-time in 2017, we could do zero of those, absolutely zero. I was wanting to do all of them at once. But here's the thing. These are the goals 
we got measurable plans to get there. Now we're training six elder interns. That's how we're building up more pastors. We've already got one church plant. We're doing our first short-term mission trip this year, and we got some exciting news about that that we'll share at the members meeting tonight. Listen, we wouldn't have got to this place if, again, all it was was I just got to get from Sunday to Sunday and, and keep the lights on. That's not a plan. You have to have a plan. You have to have a vision. You have to have measurable things that you could then try to achieve, and that's what a lot of our ministries are doing. Right? And so I, I share those to say it only happens intentionally. It's what Paul did. That's what some of our, our strong ministries are doing here. And by the way, any of the stuff that I just mentioned about myself wasn't just me. I had help from Josh, Brian, and a lot of, of leaders here and deacons and so forth. But anyhow, this is why intentionally being on point for God's mission requires intentionality. It requires looking back on what you've done and building on it. Okay, It requires looking forward and having measurable and achievable goals. Let me just give you an example of what wrong looks like. If you say, here's my plan. I want to do more ministry in two years. Let me stop you right there. That's not a plan. That is not a measurable statement. You can't know whether or not you've, you've actually achieved it. It's not intentional. If Paul simply said, I want to do more mission work, that's not measurable. But that's not what he said. He was concrete. He said, I want to go to Rome on the way to Spain. And I want you guys to be my sending church. Those are concrete and they're measurable. Okay? Same thing with us. I want a short-term mission trip every other year. I want eventually 20% of our entire budget to go to Great Commission purposes. Those are measurable goals, aren't they? We could actually look over the years. Are we getting closer to them? So you might be saying, uh, well, I'm going to do more. Okay. So instead of saying, I want to do more ministry or I want to lead my family better because that's not measurable, turn it to something like this. Here's how I'm going to lead my family. I'm going to do 20 minutes of family worship with my family five nights a week. Now that's measurable. Five nights, 20 minutes. Okay? That's something you can now look back, am I doing that? And you might say, you know, and I'm also going to get involved in a small group. That's how I'll do more ministry. And then you might say, and called to be an evangelist, so I'm going to share the gospel with one coworker per month. Now you've got concrete, measurable things. And so now you could say, all right, now that I'm starting family worship, let me ask some of the guys who already do it how they do it. And if I'm going to go evangelize one coworker per month, I better start watching maybe Ray Comfort videos on YouTube or Three Circles videos or whatever. The point is, once you have the stated goal that's measurable, you could come up with the plan of how you get there and how you achieve it. But if you just say vague stuff that means nothing, I'm going to do more. That doesn't mean anything, and so no, you won't do more, right? So intentionality. Intentionality is concrete, okay? These are the kind of things that will make us live on point for God's mission. And as you're consistent in these things, you're going to grow a lot, okay? And then as you grow, you're going to seek more and more ways to serve and grow, okay? So I think Paul has demonstrated this masterfully for us with his plan to go to Spain by way of the Roman church, But there's even more than that. I mean, it'd be easy if I could just stop right there. There is more that Paul has to teach us here. In verses 25 and 28, he's going to tell them that even though he's ready to come, there's still one thing he needs to do first before he could do his grand plan. Look at verses 25 and 26. He writes this. He says, right now, I am traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints because Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Now, if you read Paul's letters closely, okay, this issue keeps coming, up and keeps coming up again and again. The poor believers in Jerusalem. And the reason for this is Judea got hit really hard with the famine, and it led to long-term poverty. 
Okay, and those effects were still there. So Paul, in a lot of his letters, keeps bringing up this collection for the poor in Jerusalem. Why is he so committed to this? Two reasons. There's two goals he has in mind. The first you could see in Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, when he first meets Peter, James, and John. He says this. He says, when James, Cephas, which is Peter, and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. Okay? In other words, Paul made a promise to these guys. Okay, that they, they all shook hands on it. You're going to go to the Gentiles, but please don't forget the poor here. And in the book of Acts in chapter 11, he already brought one, one collection to them from Antioch. Well, now he's trying to bring a way bigger one because there was still need. And in Paul's heart and mind, he's like, I gave my word to James, John, and Peter. I'm going to do this. Before I do any other plan of mine, I'm going to keep my word. So that's his first goal in this. His second goal was bigger. It was theological right? His ministry had been showing all over the East that through Jesus Christ, through the Messiah, Gentiles are being included as equal co-heirs to Israel's promises. That's huge. That means the wall of division has been broken. Now, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, they know that doctrinally, but they don't know it experientially because every Christian in Jerusalem was a Jew, They don't have mixed congregations with Gentiles where they're seeing this work itself out. Okay, so so Paul's thinking, if I could show this with this this collection, then they will experience it from afar. Also, the Jewish unbelievers need to see this because Christians are saying the days of the Messiah have come. And in the days of the Messiah, there's supposed to be unity between Jew and Gentile. And if that's true, then the church needs to be the place to show it. And what better way to show it than for the Jewish apostle to the Gentiles to show up with an enormous sum of money and a bunch of Gentile representatives with him to alleviate the suffering of the poor believers in Jerusalem and even to give what's left to the poor Jews in general. Paul understood the picture that this paints is bigger than any personal goals or plans he has for missions. So even though he's long for years wanted to go to Rome, He's telling them, I got to go the opposite direction first. He's writing this in Corinth. Rome's this way. Jerusalem's this way. He's like, I'm actually going the opposite direction of you guys, okay? But I need to do this. I have to finish this this mission. The churches that he planted in the east, they were happy to give that money to Jerusalem, okay, to the Jewish brothers and sisters. And so Paul promised them he will see it safely delivered. And the reason I'm emphasizing this, not only because the text says it, but there's an important principle for all of us here. You have to finish what you start, okay? I know guys who want to be pastors, they start seminary, and then they don't finish. They start biblical counseling certification process, but they don't finish. They start one ministry, and before it's reached the point of self-replication or sustainability, they leave that ministry and move to another one, and then the ministry fizzles, Right? They don't finish what they start. That's not the way it's supposed to do. That's not the way we're supposed to do it, excuse me. We need to follow through on what we said we would do. And if it's something that's hugely important, like what Paul is talking about here with this, this collection, then it takes priority over his future plans. He wants to go to Rome, but priority number one is I gotta finish what I, I started. What I've been he's been working on this collection for years. He's got to finish it. It takes priority over his plan to get to Spain. 
And so may we all embrace that principle to complete the tasks first that we've committed to before we move on to whatever else just popped in our mind. Next, Paul tells the Roman Christians that this whole thing was was the right thing for the Gentile churches in the East to do. In verse 27, he writes, in verse 27, he writes this. He says, yes, they were pleased and indeed are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual benefits, then they are obligated to minister to them in material needs. It's a simple greater to lesser argument that Paul makes. In fact, Jesus told the the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4.22, he said salvation is from the Jews, right? The, The vehicle by which salvation comes to the nations is through Israel, specifically through Israel and its Messiah, okay, that then brings the Gentiles into those promises to Israel, right? And so those are huge, huge spiritual benefits, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that the Gentiles were separated from God. They were aliens aliens to the covenant. They were far off. They were separated from the commonwealth of Israel. But now they're invited into all of that. They enter the commonwealth of Israel. They enter into the new covenant. They inherit the promises. And by the way, the new covenant was made with who? Judah and Israel. And yet the Gentiles are brought into that covenant. So they inherit the promises as co-heirs. They do all this work or that they do all this, that they come into all this through the work of a Jew, Jesus, the Messiah, who died for them according to the sacrificial system of Israel. Okay? He raised for them according to the scriptures of Israel. And the Gentiles learn of the one true God by the scriptures that the Jews meticulously preserved and translated into the languages of many of the Gentiles. So Paul's point is, if Gentile believers are receiving the spiritual benefit of the Jews, which is peace with God, shalom with God, the promises of God, if they're receiving that, which is eternal life itself, then Paul's saying the least that some of these guys could do is help the Jews who are impoverished with their material needs, okay? And he tells us this idea was happily accepted by the Gentile churches that were under his care. So... With Paul justifying this trip to Jerusalem, he now tells the Romans, I haven't forgot about you. You are still in my plan. Just got to finish that first. Look at verses 28 and 29. He says, so when I have finished this and safely delivered the funds to them, I will visit you on the way to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So again, he's just telling them, look, when I've seen through on this last obligation, then I'll come. I'll come. And from you, I'll go to Spain, right, once I've been there for a while, okay? And Jesus' blessing, the Messiah's blessing, is going to be on all of this. It'll be on me. It'll be on you. He says, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And so he's saying Jesus is going to bless this, this plan. Now, there is something that I find Uh, very interesting in all of this before I move on. We've seen that Paul is intentional and very serious about going to Rome and to get to Spain, but we also see that he's putting this Jerusalem trip as the priority because he has to complete that assignment, okay? That's where he's prioritizing. What I find interesting with this is after he writes Romans and he's on his way to fulfill this plan in Jerusalem, a lot of people are going to tell him not to. A lot of people are going to try to talk him out of doing what he promised he would do. A lot of Christians are going to try to talk him out of it. And that happens all the time, just to let you know. 
Okay, once he gets to Israel, but he's not in Jerusalem yet, everyone's going to tell him, don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you if you go, Paul. It's not worth dropping this money off. Just don't go. Even a, a prophet named Agabus, who is known for being right with his prophecies, as any real prophet will be, Agabus showed up and told Paul, if you go, you will be handed over by the Jews to the Gentiles. And at the point that Agabus said that, even Paul's traveling companions started begging him not to go. Even Luke. Luke, the guy who wrote the book of Acts, tells Paul, don't go. Look at Acts 21, 12. It says, when we heard this, meaning when they heard what Agabus said, both we, so that includes Luke, both we and the local people pleaded with them not to go up to Jerusalem. Okay, we, we pleaded with them. Now, this certainly would have weighed heavily on Paul's heart. These are his closest companions telling him, Paul, your plan's dumb. Don't go. You're going to get yourself killed. What do you think Paul's response was? Was his response, well, now that you put it that way, I think I won't finish the mission? No. Next verse says, then Paul replied, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I get goosebumps when I read that because Paul was so incredibly determined. And he told his loved ones in Christ, you are not helping. You are breaking my heart. He was so faithful to his assignment from the Lord that he didn't care if it got him killed. Now, how does this relate to our text and and Paul intentionally planning for the future? For Paul, future plans took a backseat to present faithfulness. Future plans took a backseat to present faithfulness. Even though Paul has this great desire and detailed intentional plan, he will not sacrifice the needs of the moment for that plan. If he gets killed, he never gets to Spain. Didn't matter to him. Present faithfulness, more important than the future plan. If God wants him to get to Spain, he'll survive Jerusalem. That's Paul's mindset, right? He's ready to die. If he gets killed in Jerusalem, he'll be killed doing what he was supposed to do rather than running from it. And so that, that, that's just so... So impactful to Paul, his life is not more important than showing everyone that Jesus is the Messiah and the prophecies are being fulfilled. He will happily die if that message is what goes out. And so, loved ones, would would we sacrifice our future plans in order to be faithful to Christ in the present? Would we do so even if it could get us killed? And would we tell our brothers and sisters who mean well and think they're helping and they want us to be safe, will we tell them to stop breaking our hearts when they're trying to talk us out of doing what the scripture tells us to do? I hope we would tell them that. Stop breaking my heart. I'm going to finish the work and the mission that my Lord gave me. You know, recently I, w- I was invited to go to Nicaragua, Nicaragua to train pastors on how to preach. And uh, I had a loved one tell me I better not go because it's a communist government and I could be arrested and never heard from again. And I didn't give as like epic of an answer as Paul did, but I'm like, I don't care. If that's what's got to happen, that's what's got to happen. And so hopefully that loved one will hear this and then realize, oh, that's the biblical way of thinking. Now you might be saying, when do you go? <laughs> I'm not going now, but not because of that. It's just... Uh, um, Things came up, and so they got a guy from Puerto Rico to go, but they've got me on the docket maybe to go next year, so keep that in prayer. Point is, present mission as opposed to, uh, you know, your present faithfulness as opposed to future plans. Fulfill what you got in the present, then carry on with your plans. 
See, when we look at Paul, we see all this. We see amazing fidelity. We see that he's faithful in what he's already done in the past. We see that he's faithful in intentionally planning what he'll do in the future. And we see that he's faithful in completing what he was obligated to do right now in the present. There's so much to learn from his example. And yet, Paul knows none of this is done by his strength. And so we need to understand this. It's not you, ultimately, that are pulling this off by your skill or your power. He said last time, in the first half of the text, Jesus did this through him, right? So it takes Christ, it takes the Holy Spirit, and it takes a third thing that he's going to bring up right now. It takes prayer. You can't do this on your own. You can't even do it just on your own prayers. You need the church's prayers. Look at verse 30. He urges their prayers. He writes this. He says, Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in prayers to God on my behalf. Notice the somberness of this. The words I appeal in the Greek, parakalo, means I invoke you, I charge you. It almost has the force of a command without quite going that far. It's like saying, Look, I really need you to pray, okay? I'm not asking. I really, really need you guys to do this. And what does he ask him to do? He says, quote, to strive together with me in prayers. Praying is work. It's striving. The word strive means to labor strenuously. You know, how, you know how sometimes you think, gosh, praying is so hard. It feels like so much work. Paul felt that way too. So maybe you shouldn't feel so bad if Paul says, yeah, you got to strive to pray. And he's asking these people to strive with him in prayer. And he's going to lay it on them real heavy. He puts a charge on them. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in prayers to God on my behalf. Did you catch that? He appeals to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here. He's saying, please, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I am asking you, I, I need you to pray for me. And so I was just thinking about that. You know, if somebody asks you to pray for them, you should. If they say, I charge you by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to pray for me, then you better. <laughs> you really better. And, and, and that's, what, that's what Paul's getting at here. He's really laying it on heavy for them. Now, the reason he's asking for this is because in his heart, he knows danger awaits him. He does. So he asked them to pray for three things. Look at verses 31 and 32. He says, pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, that my ministry to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed together with you. Okay, so again, three things. First, please pray that I don't get killed. You know, that's what he's saying. My Jewish brothers that reject Jesus absolutely hate me, and they've been plotting my death for a very long time. That is what he's telling them to pray about. And I could tell you, as, as a Jewish man myself that follows Jesus, no one hates me more than Jews that don't follow Jesus. And it's heartbreaking. Well, for Paul, it was both heartbreaking and deadly because these guys tried to kill him lots of times. And so his instinct in this prayer was right. Because when you read the book of Acts, when he gets to Jerusalem, they do try to kill him. They beat him within an inch of his life. Apparently his prayer was answered because it's only within an inch of his life, right? So he survived, okay? He survived by the protection of the Roman soldiers. Now, second, he prays that the Jerusalem church will accept the money. And, and you might wonder, like, why would he be worried about that? Because he knows rumors have been going around, right? People are lying about him. Just like people lie about us. People lie about faithful Christians, okay? People are saying that Paul's telling Jews to stop circumcising their sons, and he's telling them that the Torah uh, could just be thrown away, 
And it's not true because when you get to Acts 21, James, the brother of the Lord, says, Paul, we know it's not true. We're going to give you a way to, to show everybody that these are lies, okay? But Paul doesn't know that yet. He hasn't got there yet. So he's thinking, what if they believe the lies? They might not take this money. So he's asking this church to pray for that. And then third, he prays for that the success in these things will get him to Rome so he could go there for refreshing. He understands that, that he's going to need some refreshing after this. So the question for us historically is, did God answer this prayer favorably? Yes, but not as Paul expected. As I said, he almost did get killed by the Jews, but he didn't get killed, so it was answered. Furthermore, the offering was accepted by the Jerusalem church, but James said, Paul, we got to make sure everybody knows that these rumors aren't true, so I need you to, to go to the temple and pay for these four, four offerings. And Paul's like, I'll gladly do it. But when he does it, that's when the unbelieving Jews attacked him. Okay, That's when he almost got killed. And then he got rescued by the Roman soldiers, but then he was kept under their protection, a.k.a. in prison, for the next two years because they were wanting him to bribe them. Two corrupt governors wanted bribes. He wouldn't pay a bribe, so he was stuck in their prison for two years. Finally, he says, you know what? I'm done with this. I appeal to Caesar. Now, he was a Roman citizen, which was kind of hard to get, but all Roman citizens could appeal to trial by Caesar. And by doing that, they now, the Roman government, had to send him with their protection to Rome, and he got to stand trial before the emperor himself, which would have been Caesar Nero. So he did get to Rome in chains, but he got there, okay? He was under house arrest, but the, the book of Acts ends by telling us it was a pretty, like, loose house arrest. It tells us he was able to minister faithfully the whole two years he was on house arrest in Rome, and we know that even some of the emperor's bodyguards became Christians during that time. So yeah, God answered the prayer. It's just that sometimes it's not the way you would expect it to be. So the remaining question, though, is did Paul ever get to go to Spain after that? Well, we don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us, okay? But the earliest Christian writers after the New Testament, one in particular is Clement of Rome. He wrote in the first century, in the year 90. He was a pastor in Rome. Less than 30 years after Paul died, he writes that Paul made it to the furthest reaches of the West, which would mean he got to Spain. I think that's a very credible thing. I mean, this was less than 30 years later from a guy in Rome who knew Paul. Less than 30 years ago, I was in high school. I remember the dumb things I was doing. So I believe a guy less than 30 years later is going to accurately remember whether or not Paul made it to Spain. And Clement says he did. And in Clement's, the way he words it, it's possible Paul made it as far as England. We just don't know. But it does seem that Nero found Paul innocent, let him go. He made it at least to Spain. Then a few years later, Nero goes crazy, wants to kill Christians. Paul gets arrested, and that's when he gets called up into to glory. But I think Paul, I think God answered all these prayers is the point. And the historical record helps at least uh, justify that, that thought. But anyway, Paul finishes this text with a prayer request and a benediction for the Roman believers. Okay, so he, he finishes, excuse me, the prayer request with the benediction. Look at verse 33. He says, may the God of peace be with all of you. Amen. In other words, he's saying, may you pray for me, as he said, and he said, and may the God of peace be with you. I could think of no better words by which he could end this, the God of peace. We who believe in Jesus are at peace with God. Those who don't are at war with God. They're at enmity with God because they're still in their sin. But for those who are in Jesus, Paul could say, may the God of peace be with you in, in all of this. Okay, so a wonderful way to end the text. So 
As we wrap up, I want us to think about what the text as a whole teaches us for our own ministries. Christians must intentionally be on point for God's mission. How? By evaluating what we've already done, by intentionally planning what we will do, by being faithful to what we're doing right now. And all this is done by treating our entire life as if it's one big act of worship, as if everything we're doing for God is an offering, and therefore it is our best. Okay, service is what is going to make you grow in the Lord. A lot of times people say, well, I want to grow. I need to study and and grow. Look, study, but you're going to grow by serving, okay? If you're not serving, you will not grow. I don't care how much of this that you're reading. You have to serve. As you serve the Lord, you will grow. You will grow in your handling of the word and in your maturity because service and the word go hand in hand, okay? You'll grow in your ethical and moral living. Why? Because the more you serve, the less your heart's about you and the more it's about God and others, okay? All ethical and moral violations are you putting yourself over God and others. If you think about it, if you're serving, you're already doing the opposite of that, And as you serve, that is how you become wise and grow in discernment and maturity. Think about it. The longer you serve, the more mistakes you're going to make, okay? And the more successes you're going to have. And then when somebody's coming along saying something that you know isn't right, you're going to be like, been there, done that. I've seen how this goes before. No, we're not doing it that way, right? You grow in discernment and maturity in the context of ministry and years of service. Additionally, you're going to keep getting better and better at what you do for the Lord, Truly, your life will be on point for Christ's mission. But I do have to say, this text, when we look at it, it offers a lot of correction for, I guess, Christians in our culture. Paul's life looked absolutely nothing like the typical American Christian's life. It just didn't. Here, the typical Christian's life, okay, is that we're on point for our own mission, and then we only contribute to Christ's mission as an afterthought, one day a week. In our culture, we put our lifetime goals as the top priority and Christ's mission as secondary. So we'll go to church on Sunday, we'll put a little bit of money in the basket, and then we think we've done our part. But in reality, we've only been on point for ourselves, and to ease our conscience, we do these secondary things for Christ. Now look, we need careers, we need to pay bills, and that's actually all good, and those things are commanded. Paul had a regular job for a lot of his ministry. He was a tent maker, okay? But he didn't live to make tents. The tent making was the means to his end, which was service to God. Likewise, as we live the Christian life, we need to think about how what we do serves God's mission, how we could be on point for him, how we could live the Christian life. Look, you're going to spend 40 hours at work a week or more, okay? That's, that's inescapable. But you got to ask yourself, does that get in the way of me serving the kingdom or is that how I'm going to serve the kingdom? Think about it. Your job puts you in the lives of dozens of people who don't know Jesus. Your job's going to do that. So that's one way you serve. Not that you start talking about Jesus at work until they fire you, okay? That's actually not that wise, okay? But instead, you become genuine friends with your coworkers. You get involved in their life. Invite them to your barbecues. Go to their barbecues. Get to know their families. Treat them like they are genuine image bearers of God rather than personal projects that you give up on when it doesn't look like they're going to convert, Okay, then what happens is outside of the work environment, because you're in their life and they're in your life, they get to see your Christian life. And then when you give your Christian proclamation, it is backed up by your Christian life. No, I'm not telling you to win them with your example. Nobody gets saved by an example. 
Okay, they only get saved by hearing the gospel. But if that gospel they hear is contradicted by your example, they're not going to want to hear it. Okay, so get involved in their lives, right? And so your job gives you that opportunity. It puts you already there in their lives. Just take it a little further. Your job also offers you a stable income to pay bills and invest in the kingdom. And if you're wise with your money, okay, a lot of people in our culture are fools with their money. They run up their debt for things they're going to throw away, you know, in just a couple years. Instead, if you're wise with your money, you pay off debt. You only buy what you need. You save up for some of the things you want. But the point is your income will grow. Your expenses will shrink. And what happens when your income grows and your expenses shrink? You have more left over at the end of each month to bless others with and to invest in the kingdom. And maybe, maybe your job's one of the good ones that will give you a retirement, okay? That's awesome, okay? The retirement now frees you up to serve Christ because you have more time. The point is, it's all about the mindset. At the end of the day, the person on point for Christ and the person on point for themselves is still spending the same amount of time at work, paying the same bills over the same period of time. But one does it for the Lord, the other does it for himself. Both get their needs provided, both get to enjoy the fruit of their work, but only one can look back and see what they've done for the Lord. Only one can then build on that plan for future ministry. Only one is actually growing in Jesus, and only one will reap the rewards of that in the new Jerusalem forever. So the question is, which one do you want to be? So loved ones, I pray that we learned much from Paul about what it looks like to live a faithful Christian life. May we all be on point for God's mission. May we all be intentional. May we be intentional in evaluating what we have done. May we be intentional on finishing what we are obligated to do in the present. And may we be intentional on planning for our service in the future. May it be this way for us. May we all be about the Lord's business. Now, if there's any unbelievers here, I'll just end this way. The passage ended by saying, may the God of peace be with you. If you're not in Christ, God's peace is not with you. You're at enmity with God and his peace will never be with you as long as you are still in your sin. But I want to let you know there, are good, there is good news. Jesus Christ, the God, God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, he became a man 2,000 years ago and did what you failed to do. He obeyed every command of the Bible and lived a perfect, holy life. He is willing to give you the credit of that holiness. What about your sin? What about all the things you've done that made it to where you deserve hell? Well, he took all that into his account and paid the penalty on the cross for those who believe, right? So if you believe, all your sins have been paid for. You will never have to pay for them. And you get the credit of Jesus's perfect life. But this is only given to those who turn away from their sins and turn to Christ in faith. Okay, receive him by faith, surrender your life to him. You'll be forgiven of your sins. And then yes, you will receive God's peace and may the God of peace be with you, right? And so don't walk out of here still in your sin. If you have any questions about that, come and talk to us uh, after the service is over and we'll gladly walk you through it. We're gonna pray. And then after that, um, I'm gonna give a communion warning. I'm gonna explain baptism a little bit and then our worship team's gonna come up. Lord God, we just uh, we thank you so much for your word. And I just pray, God, that we all take it to heart. Lord, we pray that the, the unbelievers will see your love in your word and what you are willing to do to save sinners like us. And I pray, Lord, that that would move their hearts and they would come to you, Lord, for salvation. I pray for all those who already belong to you, God, that